70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, greetings from Hanin Saleh from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Happy 70th birthday, KBS World Radio. I wish the channel the best of luck in all its future endeavors. To tell you a little bit about myself, I fell in love with Korean culture as I started to tune in to KBS channels when I was 13 years old. You helped me understand Korea and the Korean culture better and I started to build a strong relationship with the country. Last year, I won an award from Yala K-pop, a K-pop contest hosted by KBS World Radio's Arabic service, and got to visit Korea for a performance. Guess who I got to meet there? The Arabic service staff members. They were such wonderful people and gave me the warmest welcome. I was so happy to meet them. They were the best out of all the people I met in Korea. Once again, happy birthday, KBS World Radio. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it is Thursday, the 9th of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The top diplomats of South Korea, the US, held talks in Seoul and agreed to devise countermeasures against a military cooperation between North Korea and Russia. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Opposition parties unilaterally passed a labor union law reform bill dubbed the Yellow Envelope Bill. We'll learn more about the bill and other pending labor issues for our in-depth today. And coming up for Explore Korea, we discover the thought-provoking surrealist works of media artist Park Jae-hoon. We have all that and more on today's Crow 24. How are you? Very good to see you. Foreign Minister Park Jin met with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Seoul on Thursday to discuss collaborative efforts on the international stage amid increasing tensions in the region and reaffirmed their bilateral commitment to security on the Korean Peninsula. Here's what they told reporters after the meeting. The Russia-North Korea military cooperation is a clear violation of the UN Security Council resolutions and a serious threat to the entire world. The foreign ministers of South Korea, the US and Japan recently issued a joint statement condemning the arms deal between Russia and North Korea and expressed our determination to sternly respond to the situation. Uh, Today, Mr. Park and I spoke about further actions that our countries can take with partners to intensify pressure on Moscow not to transfer military technology to the DPRK in violation of multiple UN Security Council resolutions. To the extent that China values... 
Uh, KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to tell us more about this meeting and our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So as we just heard, the talks focused on devising countermeasures against military cooperation between North Korea and Russia. So what can you tell us? Well, Blinken's two-day visit to Seoul is a, a part of a tour of Asia that took him to Japan, where he sat down with his group of seven counterparts amid the Israel-Hamas conflict. The two top diplomats discussed what roles other nations, including China, may play regarding concerns about North Korea. And here's what Blinken had to say during the minister's joint news conference. To the extent that China values and places a premium on stability in the region, well, North Korea is the greatest source of instability. China has um, a unique relationship with North Korea. As a result of that relationship, it has real influence. And we do look to China to use that influence to play a constructive role in pulling North Korea back from this irresponsible uh, and dangerous behavior. And complimenting assurances by the U.S. Secretary of State that the Korean uh, Peninsula issues will not be overshadowed by the escalating tensions in the Middle East. The uh, defense chiefs of South Korea and the U.S. will also hold annual bilateral security talks in Seoul next week. South Korea's new defense minister, Shin Won-shik, and his counterpart from Washington, Lloyd Austin, are expected to discuss ways to bolster the U.S. extended deterrence against North Korea during the their first meeting on Monday. And we've got news now that Blinken has now left Seoul and is on his way to India for further Indo-Pacific talks as well. Let's turn now to the situation here in South Korea and the partisan conflict in the National Assembly. The main opposition Democratic Party on Thursday filed a motion to impeach the Korea Communications Commission chairman, Lee dong So what more can you tell us? Well, the DP made the decision to pursue the impeachment in a General Assembly, uh, general meeting that is held at the National Assembly in the afternoon before submitting the motion to the plenary session at the Parliament. The main opposition party has been uh, pressuring E to resign over an alleged violation in his management of the broadcasting watchdog, media censorship and the suspension of former chief of the Foundation for Broadcast Culture, a major shareholder of of public outlet MBC. The ruling People Power Party blasted the move as an attempt to destroy the constitution and the rule of law, with the party's Supreme Council criticising the main opposition for abusing its parliamentary uh, majority to uh, sabotage state affairs. The DP also filed motions to impeach two prosecutors, Sun Chun-sung at the Daegu High Prosecutor's Office and Lee Jong-sub at the Suwon District prosecutor's office for various alleged offences. And intensifying the partisan strife, the opposition controlled the National Assembly on Thursday also passed a revision to the Trade Union and Labour Relations Adjustment Act, known commonly as the Yellow Envelope Bill. Can you elaborate? Well, the bill passed with 173 votes in favour and one abstention, with all ruling People Power Party lawmakers boycotting the vote after opting not to proceed with a filibuster campaign in a bid to block the revision's passage. The revisions aim to limit the ability of companies to file claims against the labour unions seeking compensation for damage incurred by a strike. Now, despite the bill's 
passage in Parliament, however, President Yoon Song Yeol can still exercise his veto power, which he can he has been advised to do so uh, by the uh, ruling party, with two thirds majority in Parliament required to override a presidential veto. The DP lacks the numbers to unilaterally reach the 199 lawmakers needed in the 298 member chamber. And we should know that the ruling PPP scrapped plans to stage a filibuster against the yellow envelope bill to focus on blocking the opposition's push to file an impeachment motion for the KCC chair, Yi Dong-Wan. Indeed. Now, if the PPP had staged a filibuster as planned, the plenary would still be in session, which would have allowed the opposition DP to put the impeachment to a vote. And since the PPP has uh, scrapped its filibuster plans, the plenary is no longer in session and will not likely reconvene within the 72 hours of the impeachment motion being filed, which means the motion will fizzle out without a vote being held. Turning now to other headlines, unionised workers of Seoul's subway system operator have begun a two-day strike from Thursday after failing to reach an agreement with management. Can you tell us more? Well, the union of Seoul Metro, which operates subway lines 1 through 8 and part of line 9, decided to stage the strike from 9am Thursday through 6pm Friday after the 11th round of negotiation uh, ended in a stalemate on Wednesday. And the two sides remain at odds over the management plan to reduce its workforce by 2,212 employees or 13.5% by 2020. And management says the measure is necessary to overcome chronic deficits. By the univo- uh, but the unionized workers uh, argue that the excessive downsizing could lead to safety and service quality issues. Right. In other news, the ministry in charge of inter-Korean affairs issued a stern warning to North Korea over its threats after the South Korean Constitutional Court struck down a law banning anti-Pyongyang leaflet activity. Can you tell us more? Well, Seoul's Unification Ministry issued a statement on Thursday saying leaflet campaigns are voluntary acts conducted by civic groups in line with the constitutionally guaranteed freedom of expression, which the court cited in its ruling. The ministry then strongly uh, warned the North to refrain from rash acts under the pretext of a response to the constitutional court's decision. On Wednesday, the North issued a threat through the state-run Korean Central News Agency to pour a shower of shells into South Korea as punishment over the anti-Pyongyang propaganda leaflets. That's where we wrap up our news briefing today. Heejin, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. Opposition parties, including the main opposition Democratic Party, pushed through a bill at the National Assembly today. It's dubbed the Yellow Envelope Bill, and it seeks to revise the labour union law, limiting the ability of companies to seek compensation from unions for losses incurred during strikes. This is just one of several labour issues on the line this month. Elsewhere, the government is expected to announce a revision to the current 52-hour workweek system, An initial plan that would have raised the cap on working hours to 69 per week had to be rethought after strong opposition from labour unions and the public. 
In addition, the country's two major umbrella labour organisations are set to hold a rally this weekend to protest the labour policies of the unit administration. To take a closer look at these issues and their political ramifications, we're joined on the line now by our go-to political commentators. First, we have Law Professor Chu Hee-kyung from Hongik University. Professor Chu, hello. Hello. And we also have standing by affiliate Professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies as well. Professor Kim, hello to you too. Hello. Yes, so for our listeners, Professor Chu, can we start with you? Can you give us the details about this so-called yellow envelope bill. What is it exactly? What does it intend to do? And why is it called the yellow envelope bill? So the, this bill, as you've already mentioned in your intro, is not a new, it's not legislating a new law, but it's amending an existing legislation, the Labour Union Act. And the media has mostly focused on the limit on uh, compensation that companies could seek against striking workers for illegal collective action. But uh, from my perspective, there are actually two other very important amendments that the bill uh, makes. And these are, first of all, expanding the definition of who is an employer and who is an employee, because under the the current Labor Union Act, only the company that employs you directly is your employer. And so in the Korean labor market situation where so much of the work is outsourced to subcontracting companies, the employees of subcontracting uh, companies could not really strike against actions taken by the, the commissioning company, the, the head company, as it were. So, for example, if Hyundai Construction uh, were subcontracting to smaller companies, the workers employed by the smaller subcontracting companies, uh, regardless of you know how uh, difficult uh, conditions might be, uh, they couldn't really strike, uh, take strike action against Hyundai Construction itself. But now... With the amendment, uh, they expand the the definition of employer so that if under construction actually directly instructs or supervises uh, or otherwise controls the 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 worker, then they would be interpreted as uh, employer themselves, and the employees of the subcontractor can can take direct uh, union action against the the top company mm. of the pyramid, as it were. Okay. And the second important uh, change is that it also expands the, the conditions uh, which would allow legal collective action. So currently, the, you can only take collective action with regard to the, uh, the negotiation process of the working conditions. But once the negotiations have been completed and whatever conditions have been agreed upon, regardless of how unreasonable those conditions might be uh, that you might feel as a worker, you can't actually take any collective action against that. But now uh, that uh, limitation has been removed thanks to the amendment so that uh, even if the negotiation has been completed, if you feel that the final uh, agreement regarding working conditions are too unreasonable or unfair or mm. harsh, 
and you can still take collective action. So those are very two 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 very important changes, I think. Right. And why was it called the Yellow Envelope Bill? It's called Yellow Envelope Bill because going back to the compensation issue, which is about uh, the law limiting how much compensation a company can seek from uh, an, in a worker who has taken illegal collective action. So uh, in the, the Sangyong uh, motor vehicle uh, case, the company sought some 4.7 billion won compensation from striking workers, arguing that the workers had caused that much damage to the company as a result of their illegal collective action. And a citizen who uh, felt bad for the workers uh, donated 47,000 won in a yellow envelope, the yellow envelope representing the... um, the monthly wage envelope that you know companies used to give to their workers when you actually got cash in hand right. <laughs> and not just bank transfers uh, as you do now. Right. And uh, they actually conducted this yellow envelope campaign and they collected some 1.5 billion won from citizens themselves and right. so hence the, the name. Right, so that's the background. If we stick with you, Professor Chaw, just a bit further. So what are your thoughts on this bill? How important is it, and what do you make of the fact that the Democratic Party and opposition parties have pushed through the bill now? Well, uh, as I mentioned, I I think the uh, amendment regarding how much compensation a company can seek from an individual worker, it's an important change, but there's already a Supreme Court case which requires the company to prove the extent to which an individual employee or a worker is liable for the damage that the company has suffered, uh, which makes it quite difficult for the company to, um, you know, be able to prove against individual worker the the extent to which that particular worker caused damage. And so I think that would have been addressed through the the case law. Uh, But certainly it's good to have a definitive uh, legislation regarding this for certainty, particularly for workers' perspective, because we've had in the past uh, workers committing suicide as a result of the unbearable pressure brought on them uh, through these legal actions taken by companies against individual uh, workers, making them jointly liable for this kind of damage that company companies claim to have suffered as a result of illegal collective action. Now, on that point, though, um, there is a bit of a concern that uh, this might encourage workers to take more illegal uh, measures, such as uh, engaging in violent Mm. protest when they're striking, which under existing law is not protected and also under constitution is not protected collective action. But because their joint liability is less as a result of the amendment, uh, it may encourage them to take more um, extreme measures uh, in, in strikes. And that's right. a concern. So perhaps we could actually look to uh, you know examples from other countries where they put a limit on compensation amount, uh, for example, as they do in England uh, or um, similar measures. And so uh, perhaps some more refinements could be made right. to the, the amendments. Professor Kim, thank you for standing by.
What are your thoughts on this bill? It passed through the National Assembly today, but it will likely be vetoed by the president. And if it is, it's unlikely to then get the two-thirds parliamentary support to override that veto. So the prospects at the moment do not look bright for the bill. So what do you make of the opposition parties still pushing it through? Labor law and the regulations are really extremely a difficult subject to talk about because there are all these details involved and experts have all the details, uh, you know, understood by by their side. But uh, like, you know, outsider like myself, it's very difficult to make comments. But generally, in general, uh, I have mixed feeling about this uh, labor revision bill here because uh, among the three uh, points that have been mentioned so far, uh, one the protection for workers from the, the you know, damage compensation uh, brought up by the management. That side, I'm on largely, generally, I'm, on, I'm with the management side. And the other two points about the expansion of the definition of employer, uh, I'd I, I like to see the contract workers have uh, greater labor rights for instance. So therefore, I am actually for this revision in general without knowing the details, overall direction of it. And uh, uh, condition of legal, legal conditions for, uh, you know, collective action. Also, without the details, I'm uh, on the side of the workers. So uh, it's, you know, it's difficult to say which, which side I'm on on this bill. I'm actually a split mm. uh, on those points. Uh, especially the first part, having mentioned my position supporting workers' position on the point two and three, I want to focus a little bit on the first point because we know that first one about you know uh, protecting workers from being charged or sued by the by the company for the the damages they have caused. Uh, I said I'm uh, with the management side on this issue because of my uh, memory of recollection of Sangyong Motor case 2009. Uh, I'm sure, um, you know, our uh, listeners may have different position on this and they may have different memory on it and so on. But I felt some of the extreme uh, protesters on the side of Sangyong Sangyong, uh, Labor Union has caused really violent damages and they almost, I'm talking about this small number of minority extremists among the protesters, but I thought they actually held the, company hostage, uh, the livelihood of other workers hostage, and they uh, went all the way very, very far, causing a lot of damages to the company and, again, livelihood of other workers as well. Mm. And if you say that they have to be protected Mm. for what they have done, I would not take that side with that kind of argument at all. So I think there there has to be a reasonable balance between the company's right to sue the workers who causes this violent damages in their protest and then labor movement or collective action altogether. Mm. And at the same time, definitely, my heart goes to the workers as well, uh, you know, for becoming victim of law that allows maximum compensation and company being able to go out there to the, to the court and, 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 you know, making all the damages liable on the side of the workers after collective action. In that case, my heart goes to the workers. So I think we got to find the right balance. We don't want to go to any of the extremes and we got to assume that, you know, there are bad people on both sides, companies as well as workers. And 
we want to make the right balance. And for that, right. I guess, you know, it, it's a good idea to have this kind of conversation, uh, you know, s- separating different points of this kind of a law altogether. Right. As you mentioned earlier, for now, the prospects. Very briefly, Professor Cho. Yes, I just want to um, make sure that there is no misunderstanding. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, striking workers can get off scot-free just because they are engaged in collective action if they take illegal, violent measures while striking. Uh, what the new bill does is to make sure that individual workers are not under joint liability for the the illegal action taken by other workers. Uh, Typically, what happens is that unions are responsible for damages caused. But if there is individual illegal activity, then that person may be charged criminally Mm. and uh, bear criminal responsibility. But what the bill does is to try to ensure that individual workers don't become jointly liable for the maximum compensation that the company is claiming from the union. Right. Well, for now, the future of the uh, bill remains in doubt, especially with that potential uh, presidential veto hanging over it. However, it will remain a contentious issue and uh, will likely come up again in the future, even if it is uh, vetoed down this time. Meanwhile, as we said, there are other upcoming labour issues. Uh, The government is set to announce some supplementary measures to a planned revision to the current 52-hour workweek system that had sparked public concern over longer workweeks. It's been drawn up following surveys of some uh, 6,000 citizens and focus groups. It was initially set to be announced this week, but it has been postponed now till next Monday. Professor Kim, we'll try to keep keep this brief, but can you explain for us first why the government is trying to revise the current 52-hour workweek system in the first place? The current 52-hour work uh, system has been put in place under previous Moon government, progressive Moon government. And the way it works is, uh, you know, the reason why we call it 52-hour work is it has main uh, work hour, official work hour, 40 hours per week in place. And then on top of it, you can add uh, 12-hour maximum overtime. So if you add 40 uh, and 12 together, it's 52 hours. And so it's a maximum hour of the week, uh, work hour per week that's defined. Uh, there are exceptions, but many of the, most of the workplaces have to abide by this law. And from the management perspective, this has been viewed as a very uh, restrictive and rigid system. And they've been arguing for uh, greater flexibility. So this current uh, conservative government came up with this idea of 69-hour uh, work week. The way it works is it's not necessarily increasing the over total uh, work hour altogether, but it's saying we have to allow flexibility. One way, critical way of allowing, allowing flexibility is rather than um, making overtime 12-hour maximum per week, let's add that and then let's keep the same amount of overtime per week but let's add them four weeks four and a half weeks per per month and then use that monthly overtime maximum and then use it so that you know different workers at different situations can can work more under a certain week and then less in others uh, without going over the total work mm. hours and so right if you calculate if you come up with the monthly total of this overtime work 
and then apply it to a certain week and they come up with the maximum hour you can work, that's about 69 hours. So that's, right. that's why it's called 69-hour uh, work week. It's not like if you add a total month, it doesn't go over the current total. So right. uh, the, the focus is about the flexibility. Indeed, it's about allowing flexibility. But the plan received backlash from labor groups and the public as well, particularly young people, when it was first announced. And it's expected that perhaps a different plan could be unveiled on Monday. Professor Kim, what do you think the government might do with regards to the work system now? And what do you think they should do? Yeah, at this time, government should just make it very clear that this is all about flexibility, but it's not about working uh, more hours in total. That message has not been properly conveyed to the young workers. And when you hear the number 52 versus 69, of course, you know, ordinary citizens will react, uh, you know, in a way. So the government is forcing us to work more hours. I don't like that. They will react that way. Uh, So I guess the communication strategy will be very important. And and even the name of it, 69-hour workweek system, may not work for the right purpose as well. So uh, as long as the flexibility is the goal of this policy, they should stick with it, should come up with a different name for it, and have to come up with uh, better ways of explaining the idea uh, to the public. I I think that's, in my mind, one of the Mm. simplest uh, solutions. Right. we can think of. Professor Cho, your thoughts on the uh, debate over the workweek system? I, I think it's not really going to uh, be effective. There's no point in the government trying to impose flexibility top-down on companies. I mean, it's a little bit like having, you know, un- under existing law, we have protected paternity leave and maternity leave, but not many employees outside public sector can actually take their full share of uh, such leave that are legally available to them. And I think it will be uh, the same case for this so-called flexible uh, working condition because the company culture and conditions right now in Korea do not allow for that. So unless that changes, uh, you know, regardless of what kind of flexible scheme the, com- the government might come up with, uh, companies are not going to really be mm. able to implement them properly. Workers are not going to be able to enjoy them properly. Right. Well, in the meantime, we'll see what the government announces next week. And all this comes amid the broader backdrop of the president's push for labour reforms. In a speech delivered to Parliament last week, President Yoon sung yeol said that uh, his administration will continue to reform the nation's labour, education sectors and the state pension plan because uh, there is a need to uh, change, to renovate the structural programme, the structural paradigm of the country's economy for sustainable growth. So if we focus on the Labour side for now, Professor Chok, what's your take on President Yoon's remarks and his overall Labour policies? Um, I think the current government is trying very hard to be seen to be doing something uh, on these uh, three major sets of reforms that they promised while in effect, not really doing much. Uh, We've seen that with regard to state pension program. uh, We've seen that with regard to education reform. And again, uh, regarding labor reform, you know, we've just talked about the the, the new sort of um, working hours, etc. They were supposed to release uh, the study that they've been doing since, was it April, uh, March? Back in 
around uh, the Moon Festival, right, in in uh, end, end of September, and they've pushed it back uh, until now, and they're still pushing it, it back. And I half suspect that it will be very similar to the recent pension reform that they re announced, right. which basically said, okay, fill in the blanks. We don't give you any numbers. But the whole you know, idea, whole point about pension reform is actually having, uh, you know, what percentage increase should there be, uh, you know, how, how much people should people contribute more, um, what's the kind of, um, you know, um, difference that you are going to accept in terms of your final uh, salary and the pension that you're going to receive. So the numbers were the most important thing, but they actually right. left them out. And I feel that this is going to be the, the same in terms of labor reform as well. Professor Kim, your thoughts as well on President Yoon's labour policies and his attempts at reform so far as well? Uh, not necessarily specifically labour policies, but more broadly within the labour policy included. I think what Yoon government is doing in general, in principle, is the uh, right thing to do, and I support it, because I believe the true function, one of the essential functions of politics is continuous introduction of reform against uh, what this Yun government calls cartels. I like to call them uh, oligarchies, uh, vested interests on both sides, conservative and progressive side. Uh, you know, over time, uh, we, the human uh, nature tend to uh, lead to creation of oligarchies, uh, you know, vested interests under existing systems. And you have to sometimes fight against them. And when I see Yun government trying to fight against doctors, for example, medical doctors and, and education business. These are the people on the right side, conservative side, but when they enjoy this kind of enjoy privilege and uh, extra profits and so on, and when I see the government trying to uh, fight against what they call cartels, what I call oligarchies, oligarchies, I think it's a good thing. And labor should not be an exception for that as well. Uh, I'm one of those people who believe over the past several decades labor unions have become excessively powerful entity in Korean politics, and they need to be controlled and they need to be better balanced. So in that sense, I'd like to support the government continuing on with its efforts to carry on its political reform. I think that's the true, truly needed function of politics and, and uh, is something that we exist in, uh, we expect in democracy. That's where we'll leave it for today. Thank you, Professor uh, Kim, Professor Chaw. Thank you for your time, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 5.46 points, or 0.23%, on Thursday to close at 2,427.08. The tech-heavy Kosdaq, however, fell 8.15 points, or 1%, to close at 802.87. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.5 won against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,310.11. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We've come to Korea Trending Now, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. 
Well, it's good to see you again, Chang'u. Uh, let's get straight into the first story. What do you have for us? Well, with the college scholastic ability test here in Korea or Suning just a week away, one of the biggest areas of interest here in the nation is, of course, as usual, education. Naturally, the QS World University Rankings Asia 2024 grabbed attention when it was released on Wednesday. Right, so the Asian university rankings are out then. So we're all eager to know two things, I guess. Where do Korean universities rank and who came out on top? Let's start with uh, some of the top dogs in Asia. Uh, Peking University, China, uh, is on top. Uh, It received a perfect 100 overall score. Runner-up was the University of Hong Kong. Sitting in third place is the National University of Singapore. China led the way with the highest number of universities that made up the top 100 at 24. South Korea, we had 16, Japan at 13. For Korea, the highest-rated institute was Yonsei University at number 8 with an overall score of 91.4. Trailing close behind was Korea University with 90.9. This year's QS Asian University rankings included 856 universities from Asia. 11 indicators, including academic reputation, are used to compile the rankings. Well, interesting that arguably Korea's most prestigious school, arguably the most prestigious school, Seoul National University was held there, was not the top-ranked school in Korea this year. But what can we discover upon close inspection of the rankings for Korean universities overall? Well, there are different ways of ranking, different ranking systems as well. So of course. In that, of course, Seoul National University or Pohang University, uh, uh, I believe uh, the technological universities, they are higher in ranking than uh, Korea University or Yonsei University. Mm. So it's a matter of uh, the, the system, the, way, the system of ranking the schools. Of course. So in, under this, this category, 87 Korean universities were rated. Among them, 11 of them, or 13%, managed to climb up the rankings. Nine remained the same. 63 or 72% slid down from their previous year's ranking. International Research Network is an area Korean universities fare rather poorly. This metric provides insights on how internationally connected an institution's research is. So Korean universities must push to improve collaborative research efforts. However, overall research abilities are declining mainly due to the declining number of students in universities, which leads to financial challenges for institutions in terms of providing funding for research, as well as the ability to increase or improve faculty. So we must give credit where credit's due, though, as this is the first time the two Korean universities, Yonsei and Korea, broke into the top 10 since the year 2019. Okay, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Korea's Mounted Police Unit, established in 1946, was selected as one of Seoul's future heritages in 2017. Uh, this means that it was chosen as something worth passing on to future generations. But just six years later, authorities have decided to disband the unit. Right, so we're talking about police who patrol on horseback. What's the reason for the police to reach this decision after years of efforts to try and preserve the unit? In an interview with local news outlets released Thursday, officials, including Commissioner General Yunigun, explained that the police force is undergoing drastic changes to enhance law enforcement abilities out in the field, so it is reducing other departments that focus mainly on administrative affairs or other, uh, other I suppose, uh, services. The mounted police unit did serve a greater role in the past, like traffic control, but uh, with changes, there came you know, a lot of uh, differences and different ways that police can serve and mm. are, or rather unable to serve the way they used to. The roles were mostly reduced to promotional activities like taking part in festivities and ceremonies. Still, I understand that there were voices of opposition 
to this move. Yes, yeah, so it's important to give recognition and respect to the unit that was an active part of national defense as the mounted police fought for the country during the Korean War even. Some historians criticize the decision to disband the unit, pointing out how the UK maintains and preserves the tradition of the guards or sentry at Buckingham Palace. Such traditions, which some might consider outdated and obsolete, are important means of preserving and promoting the rich history and pageantry of the past. So now the seven members of the unit will be dispatched to other departments and the ten horses, part of the team, will be auctioned auctioned off. Various properties of the unit, including the uniforms, will be sent to the Korean National Police Heritage Museum. Yes, it does seem like a shame to disband the unit considering the history and the efforts that had been made to preserve it. But I guess it's just a signal of the changing of the times. Okay, let's continue on to our last story now. What else has been trending today? Son Heung-min has had his fair share of racist remarks or gestures from fans of opposing teams while performing in international stages at the arguably the highest level in football in the EPL. One particular incident came during an English Premier League game between Tottenham Hotspur FC and Crystal Palace back in May. Uh, this time, a Crystal Palace fan gave deserving pun- what is given deserving punishment for making racist gestures targeting the Korean star. Yes, while that incident was troubling. It's encouraging to hear that action has been taken then. I understand that Son's team, Tottenham, played an active role in seeking a harsher punishment for the out-of-line fan. Yes, British media reported on Wednesday that Robert Garland from Croydon was initially sentenced to 60 hours of unpaid work and fined just under £1,400, around 2.2 million won, back in August, after pleading guilty to a racially aggravated public order offence. However, Spurs and the Metropolitan Police felt the punishment was too, too lenient and appealed to the UK Football Policing Unit. As a result, banning order was issued. The 44-year-old is banned from attending any domestic or international games for three years. He also has to surrender his passport when international matches are held. Yes, it certainly sends a strong signal that these sorts of hate crimes will not be tolerated in the EPL. And the gesture Garland made, of course, was one that is sadly all too familiar for Asians around the world. Right. As Son walked toward the touchline, Garland made the pulled eye gesture. He was caught in the act and the footage quickly spread online, causing widespread condemnation from fans. Not just Spurs, but Crystal Palace and the EPL as well rolled up their sleeves to make it clear that such actions will not be tolerated, even creating a website dedicated to reporting racism or discrimination of any kind. Racism is a chronic problem in football across Europe. Among the number of ridiculous racist attacks by fans included West Ham fans calling Son a dog-eating bleep via social media during a game last February. Yes, it's of course very disheartening to see. But uh, hopefully through actions like this step-by-step change uh, can be made and it can lead to a better future. That's where we're going to wrap it up for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. We continue on now to Explore Korea, a weekly segment discovering some of the cultural, historical and travel highlights that the nation has to offer. And for that, joining me this week, we have our arts explorer, Anjou, with us here in the studio. Anjou, hello. It's great to see you again. Likewise, Sangho. Okay, so what are we talking about this week? Okay, so uh, today we're going to talk about an artist who 
Well, considering its level of artistry, choice of medium, and subject matter, it's just way too important and interesting to talk about, especially regarding the nature of our show. And what I mean by that is, well, we're currently living in a period of history we've been calling the information era for Mm. the past few decades, right? Well, in the media world, what this means is that we have access to so many different outlets of information, from the more traditional ones such as radio and television, to the ones which have a much shorter history, such as podcasts and social media. However, what hasn't changed a bit is the amount of time we have for consuming all of it. One day is still exactly 24 hours. Right. So this naturally implies that if you're regularly tuning into a show like Korea 24, instead of the plethora of other stuff you can listen to or watch with your limited time, it's probably because you're seeking for answers to a few significant questions, such as, what is the status quo of Korean society? the society you're living in or have keen interest in. How do these key elements of the very latest of the society affect your personal life? And eventually, what does it mean to be directly or indirectly part of this social network in these particular times? Now, these are some of the many thoughts which team my mind when I appreciate the works of this week's artist. Chang-ho, today I'd like to share that appreciation with our answers, thirsty listeners. (laughs) The Marvelous Artistic Practice of Park Che-hun. Right, I see. I think you're saying that he's an artist whose works uh, really make you think about the world and society and our place in it, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Sounds very intriguing. Can you tell us more? Can you tell us more about this artist, Park Jae-hun? Okay, so let's go over the bio first. He was born in 1986, uh, born and raised in the dynamic city of Ursan, and he's currently double-based in Seoul and Amsterdam. Uh, I believe it's rather important that he lives and works in these two particular cities, Seoul and Amsterdam. I'll I'll explain why in just a bit. Mm. But um, if we take a look at his academic background, he received both his bachelor's degree and first master's degree in painting from the College of Fine Arts at Seoul National University. Then he attended the Royal Academy of Art in the Netherlands for his second master's, this time in artistic research. And although he has an academic background in painting, his current craft has little to do with brushes and palettes. He is now predominantly a motion picture artist, or as we more commonly say in the art world, a media artist. Mm. And a globally acclaimed media artist. You see, for the past decade, he's been exhibiting his works at a number of different countries across Eurasia, including the Netherlands, Switzerland, and China. Okay, so he's based in Seoul and Amsterdam, and Mm -hmm. he's uh, a media artist, you said. Can you tell us a bit more about his work and his craft. Sure. So let's talk about the subject matter first. And I believe we can safely say that Park Jae-hun is a 21st century vanitas artist. And what does vanitas mean? Well, first of all, it's the Latin word for vanity. And in art history, it was traditionally a genre of still-life painting, which discusses the themes of mortality and meaninglessness of mundane values. Like, for example, human skulls, juxtaposed with other transitory objects, such as gold coins and candles. Mm. And many Vanitas paintings were created in a few European countries over the 15th and 16th centuries, and the genre especially flourished in mid-15th century Netherlands. 
And if you're a student of European history, you probably already know that this period of time overlaps with, yes, the so-called Dutch Golden Age, Mm. the time when the Netherlands was one of the world's greatest powerhouses. So the obvious question is, why Vanitas? while doing so well in terms of international politics and economics. So you can understand that for the artists back in that time, so you get all that money in, you have global political power, but you're wondering, what's the meaning of all this, Mm, right? Right, I see. We are all mortals anyways, right? So, and as a matter of fact, while you're pursuing all that political power and economic wealth, what is the trade-off in that process? Mm. Are we possibly losing the very... understanding and nature and and, and reason to exist as human beings, right? And this is perhaps why Park Jae-hoon's craft resonates so much with people here in Korea and other parts of the world as well, especially in developed countries in our times, right? Because if you think about Korea's history and status quo, if you study any economic growth or economic development textbook, you will know that a great case study when it comes to vast <laughs> economic development is where? South Korea, of, of course. course, right? Mm. But obviously, we paid a huge political price as well in order to achieve that. And earlier, I said it's really important that he's double based in Seoul and Amsterdam while he has a background of being born and raised in Ursan, right? Let's not forget, Ursan. has the highest GDP per capita in South Korea. It's not Seoul. It's Wursan, right? Oh, interesting. I didn't yes, know that. because okay. of their industries, mm. right? So you are born and raised in this highly, highly, highly uh, industrial urbanism, and then you move to Seoul to uh, pursue your academics in fine art, and then now you understand that you're double-based and working both in the capital city of this particular economy and that of the Netherlands. Now, the Netherlands now, in the 21st century, they're not doing not too bad. They're an OECD country, they're a wealthy country, powerful mm. country, but they've been through a lot in terms of the up and, up and downs of regarding that trade-off. Right. So... And then Seoul, I think it's relatively newer in that sense. And you right. have the entire world nowadays focusing so much on what exactly is going on in South Korea in terms of political development, in terms of economic development. And on the other hand, as we discuss so often on our show, including very recently, how come despite all that, we're going through these issues such as a low birth rate right. and these kind of things, right? Right. So you can understand that the study of Seoul from a global, global perspective could also be understood as Seoul and South Korea being embedded in a greater current of right. global politics and economy, that never-ending struggle for materialistic growth, growth, and more growth, and in return, what is the exact cost we're paying. Right, so all that you're saying is uh, incorporated into Park j e o n s work, but how does he visualize such subject matter? Exactly. So, uh, well, first of all, he creates surrealist situations to discuss these very real issues and inspire his viewers with ideas which may help us overcome our supra-materialistic challenges. I'll give you one example of one of his works. Uh, This one is titled The Guillotine Room. Mm. And if you take a look at this work, it's a video of a guillotine, and you see that the guillotine, the blade is coming down, and then it's pulled back up. But what it's doing is it's not executing a person. It's executing the sun, the very center of our solar system. So, of course, it's a a surrealist uh, work, and there's some multi-symbolism here, right? First of all, the sun, of course, in French history, is a symbol of the monarch. But 
in the world of Park Jae-won, it's also the symbol of nature. So with all this economic development and the technological enhancements we have, as a result, because of the environmental disasters that we're experiencing now, it could also be an execution of nature, which brings us back to the symbolism of the guillotine. In the beginning, it was a symbol of political struggle towards right. democracy, right? Going anti, uh, going uh, to- headed towards an anti-monarchy. But then, at the same time, that very power of the people is now executing an even greater power—the very power which we all need: the power of nature. Right. So if you think about it, the power of the people could all could be democratic, but at the same time, nature destructive through ironically what economic growth. So you have these kind of situations going on. And that sort of be the Park Jae-won style of discussing a 21st century Vanitas. Yes, I actually saw this work online as well. And Mm -hmm. it is quite an arresting, uh, moving image, I'll describe it, a surreal scenario. And it's presented in frames, uh, like a picture frame, but it's essentially a a screen that Mm -hmm. you see uh, hung up on the walls of the museum. They're quite mesmeric and thought-provoking, as you said. That's right. And we can see them in an exhibition that's taking place in Seoul now, right? That's right. So for the guillotine room and many other works of his, uh, you can go to this exhibition titled Derivative Landscape. The venue is one of my favorite art museums here in Korea. It's the Songguk Art Museum in the Gwangmun area of the Cheongnugu District. Oh, and by the way, in the month of November, just an absolutely beautiful neighborhood, I mm. must say. Uh, the show runs through the 19th. And for more information, please visit songgukmuseum.org. You may spell songguk, S-U-N-G-K-O-K. Right, and for our listeners who won't be able to check out the museum exhibition in person, we do have some photos and I think videos That's right. uh, taken by Joe on our Instagram account as well, KBS underscore Career24. So our listeners can check that out to see what we've been talking about today as well. Right, we'll wrap it up there for Explore Korea. Joe, thank you for that recommendation and we'll catch up with you next time. Take care. Wonderful. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda. I'm Barista Omburam, and the winner of the 2023 World Barista Championship. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. No tea. It's morning edition preview now, our closing segments where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is here with us once again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. OK, so what's the first article that you have for us today? So this is for our listeners who enjoy cooking and have wanted to try their hand at Korean food. In the near future, you will get the chance to make newly created Korean fine dining dishes from the comfort of your home. That's because the South Korean government is releasing its own ebook cookbook. And that's what Kim Dussel's article in the food section of the Korea Herald is about. Right. So the government is yes. releasing its own cookbook that's very interesting and it's uh, as you said newly created korean fine dining sure. dishes that's interesting so it won't contain recipes of 
typical Korean dishes that you've seen in the past. Exactly. There will be 15 recipes altogether, and the government put a lot of thought into creating them. So it held an event last week in Seoul's Gangnam District, and the article mentions that it invited a group of chefs, professors, culinary connoisseurs, and industry insiders. Those who went to the event were asked to come up with new creative dishes that include only Korean ingredients. Mm. They include rice, abalone, and gochujang. The reason the government has decided to invite these guests and create this ebook is to offer a new direction for curing cuisine and give insights into Korea's boundless potential overseas. Sounds very intriguing. Did the article give any hints as to what type of dishes were created? It gave a few examples. So you have an oyster and scallop dish with gochujang salsa, steamed chicken with shiitake mushrooms, and a traditional style fruit punch and sorbet using pear. Mm. I'm just getting hungry just talking about this. <laughs> but sadly, it doesn't say when this ebook will be released, but it did mention that the recipes will be included in the curriculums of overseas Korean food education institutes. If you take a look at the article tomorrow, you'll be able to see what some of the dishes look like. There's also a picture of the participants creating dishes. They, they look more like scientists than chefs, the way they're <laughs> carefully pulling the food on the plate. Right. But yeah, you can also read comments made by some of the chefs who participated. Yes, it'll be interesting when this ebook comes out. One for the home chefs <laughs> out there who are interested in Korean food. Let's continue on to our next article. What else have you found in tomorrow's newspapers? Well, I chose this article because it is about something I've not heard of before. Mm. We've talked on the show about how competitive it can be in Korea, from education, work, to even lining up for hours to get a burger or buying K-pop tickets. <laughs> well, what I'm talking about this time is a lottery that the Korean military held last week, and the winners are able to join the Korean augmentation to the United States Army. You can read uh, Yoo Jin's article in the national section of the Korea Times. Yes, this is a highly sought-after placement mm. for those who are uh, beginning their mandatory military service. Right. But for our listeners who may not know what the augmentation unit is, can you give us a, a brief background? So what it means is those who are given the chance to join the augmentation unit will be stationed at US Army bases across the country instead of the Korean bases. Mm. It is very competitive. This year, around 15,400 people applied for the lottery. Only 1,762 can make the cut. So the competition, uh, competition rate is 8.7 to 1. The reason it is competitive is because the unit's conscripts are given perks that the U.S. troops in Korea have. The perks include more freedom to leave the base camp, experiencing American culture and learning English, and even having single or double rooms. Very different to conscripts in Korean bases where the groups sleep in the same room. Right. And of, of course, days off on Korean and American national holidays are icing on the cake. Right. So you can see why this placement would be very popular. Yes. It's uh, very competitive. Uh, but uh, once you have the basic level of uh, English that's required for this uh, position, mm -hmm. as you said, you're putting a lottery. Yes. Can you tell us more about the lottery as well? Well, it is held at the Military Manpower Administration's headquarters in Daejeon City. Around 30 of the people who entered the lottery or family members on behalf of that person are in the hall where it takes place. Six of the attendees are asked to each give a number. Then an MMA official enters the six digits into a computerized lottery system, and within five seconds, the successful applicants are chosen. This is so that uh, this is that the way that people uh, join the. This is so that the way the people join the unit is open and fair. Mm. 
The men who were accepted will start military service in January, and the men who were rejected have to join the Korean military as participants can't apply more than once. So yeah, I thought it was an interesting look into the military here, and that's why I chose the article. Yes, it is an interesting uh, system that they have. Fairly common knowledge in Korea, I would say, but mm. for any listeners who are not aware, this would be a, a very interesting system, and sure. you can learn more in tomorrow's uh, newspaper, tomorrow's Korea Times. Uh, that's where we're going to leave it for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Huh. You ready? Let's go.